So the last couple of weeks, oh, by the way, I'm Mark. I'm the rector here, senior pastor. If you're visiting, great to see you. Uh, last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about where our church could go going forward. We've been doing a little mini-series on the vision. And uh, I demonstrated again last week why, as an artist, I'm a very good verbal communicator, as I drew up a picture of sort of the process of our church and, and how we go. And so then I thought I should probably do something that makes it a little more transferable, a little easier to see and understand. So um, I did that. Thank you. Thanks, Penelope. Yep. Round of applause. Now, if you can't see that, um, uh, the suggestion is opera glasses uh, for church, I think. Uh, it's just some issues around the resolution, but believe me, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, and it just says, look, we, we as a church, we grow, we, we do evangelism and mercy and justice work, and then people join us into public worship like this at various times and places. We draw people into a process of spiritual formation, becoming more like Jesus. The heart of the church, as C.S. Lewis said, is to form many Christs. Um, and then uh, we go back out into the world to bear witness to Jesus and to integrate our faith and our work. And, and that's the process. It's really very simple. And I love, uh, and it's nothing new. Uh, there's no rocket science here. There's no magic. And we got thinking about this. And I love thinking about and trying to organize how do we, how do we work strategically to grow and scale for growth and make an impact in the city. It was really good. So I thought, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and then this week I was doing some reading and I came across this quote uh, from a fellow called E.M. Bounds, who you might not have heard of. He's a 19th century American lawyer and preacher and pastor. And he said this, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but people whom the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit in our old language, can use people of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through people. He does not come on machinery or apps, but on people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. I thought, strike, we should do some praying then, shouldn't we? <laughs> That's right, isn't it, in the end? We can, we can do all the organizing and the planning and all the rest of it that we want. But, uh, you know, as the psalmist says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards watch in vain. That, that what we're doing fundamentally is not building a club, not building an IT company, not building a social movement. We're building a spiritual movement. And that that requires us working with God. So that requires us to pray and to be a people of prayer fundamentally. Now, here's my dilemma with prayer. Most of us, Whenever you hear that the preacher is going to preach on prayer, if you're like me, you just immediately start to feel guilty, don't you? Because if you're like me, and maybe you're much more spiritually evolved than me, and that would be a really good thing. But most of us go, prayer is a bit like exercise and flossing. We know we should do it, and we feel better when we do it, and there's no doubt that it's centrally important to our lives. But oh my goodness, 
we just struggle so much to do it and we could do so much more, couldn't we? It's one of those things. And so I don't want us to feel guilty this morning. I really don't. And I was talking to God a lot about this this week. Uh, I found it a very, um, very hard to prepare for this morning for all kinds. I just found it was, it, was a, it was a massive battle. So I've just been talking to God and saying, you know, Father, what do I do? What do I do? Help me. So I'm, I'm going to try and do my best not to make us feel guilty, but to cast a picture before us and equip us to, to really become a people of prayer. And, and you need to hear I'm speaking as, as a human being on the journey, right? I don't stand in front of you as some great uh, guru. I'm not an EM Bounds. Um, but I, I wondered, uh, to start us thinking, I wanted to do a little uh, exercise that I, I often do in coaching with people around behavior change. And I want you to rate yourself. Now, you don't have to yell out unless you do. You know, public confessions are typically Saturday nights. Um, but, you know, this morning, think about yourself. On, on the scale of zero to 10, where zero is, you have no interest in prayer, you never pray. Nah, prayer, not for you. Uh, and, and you may be here because someone's dragged you along, you're a skeptic, you're an agnostic, you're a hardcore atheist, you never pray. Number 10 is, oh my goodness, you pray like Jesus. No improvement is possible or necessary. In fact, Jesus turns up to learn how to pray from you. Okay, so that's 10. Uh, so zero, no prayer. 10, just couldn't get any better. How would you, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Maybe just think about that. Now, most of us, I'm guessing, if I were to guess, actually, I'm feeling more optimistic. I've had more coffee than at nine o'clock, so I'm, I'm, I'm moving slightly down the scale. But I reckon if I'm honest about myself, I'd be uh, seasonally adjusted. Uh, hang on, I've just got to get the pen working. Seasonally adjusted, I reckon. I would be a, a three or a four, right? Somewhere around there, most of my life. Uh, and there might be times when I pray a whole lot more. So here's the thing that strikes me as I think about myself and possibly about you. Um, why, why is it? You see, if, we're, if, if, I'm, if I claim to be a Christian and I claim to know God, why is it that prayer is so hard? And challenging. And I, it seems to, uh, there'll be a, t a season when it's easy. Like, you know, when my mum was dying. It's kind of easy to pray then. Oh, you know, because like there's this thing that focuses you so dramatically. But in the day-to-day -day life, I sort of, I drift back down to a three or a four. Why, why am I not a seven or an eight? Or a nine or a ten? What makes prayer hard? So I thought, you've got that in your head. Now maybe for you, prayer is really easy and you are more like a nine or a 10, in which case you can just you know, look down on the rest of us and go, oh, I'm glad I'm not like these other sinners, um, but, uh, and, and just doze for the next five minutes. For those of us who find prayer a challenge, why do we find it hard? What makes prayer today hard for us? Let's yell it out. This is not a rhetorical question. Time. Yeah, what else? Fatigue, yeah, that's a 
was it? Everything's okay. Yeah, so it's like no need. That's a good one. Everything's. What else makes it hard? Distractions. Yep. What else makes it pretty? It feels one way. Over, yeah, overestimated ability, uh, overestimated confidence in ourselves. So how would we summarize that? Like self-reliance, something like that. Self-reliance, yeah. Yeah. Materialism. materialism. Ah, so philosophical materialism. This is all there is. Sorry? Unworthiness. Whew. Yeah. God will not hear me if I cherish sin in my heart. It need, yeah, so, so vulnerability and submission. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no burning platform. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when my mum was dying, there's a burning platform. I've got to pray for mum because she's dying. And then she stops dying. Well, she dies. So I don't have to pray for her anymore. So what do I pray for? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good. Okay. What else? So, sorry, prayers discouragement yeah because you pray and then well like I always tell the story um, you know that I, I prayed for my brother to become a Christian for 25 years and he became a Muslim that's a tad discouraging <laughs> I just put it out there right I was like come on this shows maybe someone else should be doing this talk. I'm really good to speak out of a place of discouragement. <laughs> uh, Annie, you said something? Yeah. That's a lot of stuff that makes prayer hard, isn't it? That's a lot of stuff. Uh, did all of you hear that? There's a theology around that implies prayer doesn't work. So I want to. I think let's. That's a good segue into into the thinking I've been doing, and I, I think it captures a bunch of this stuff. There are there are two. Well, th there's stuff in us that makes prayer hard, like our busyness, the choices we make. At one level, those are quite easy to address, aren't they? At one level, like you know. We all, I could do the usual motivational speaker productivity engagement thing and say, we all have time to do the things that are important to us. Like we all had time to put our clothes on this morning, right? We all had time to come to church this morning. It's important you come, you've got time to eat. So you, you could look at the stuff in us. I think there's a deeper issue though. 
And it's about our experience of God. And I think the two issues are really this. One, uh, and it goes to what Richard said about materialism, we struggle to believe that God really exists. Let's just be honest right there. You go, it's kind of hard to sustain belief in an involved God, the God of the Bible. Uh, so we live, there's a sociologist called Charles Taylor who's written a massive tome called The Secular so this a secular age, and he he says he he paints he points out how over the last couple of hundred years we've moved from a an experience of the world of what he calls an unbuffered self. So an unbuffered self is a self that is completely open to God and the spirit world and demons and angels and like the the spirit world and God is everywhere. Like it was in you know in years past and in other cultures, it's very unusual not to believe in God. It's just a given that the spirit world is as real as the material world. He says now the key shift since the Enlightenment is we live with a buffered self, which is that it it is now our experience that between us and God is a great big empty space. That in fact, all that's really real is the material and the rest of the world is empty. And so in this place now, even people of faith have to continually grapple with the fact of is there a God or isn't there a God? That's a phenomenon that wasn't, yeah, a couple of hundred years ago, no one really had those debates with any seriousness. It was just assumed. Now the assumption in our culture is there isn't a God or if there is, this God is vague and distant and unknowable. And so to be people of prayer today is really quite hard because every time you go to pray, you bang up against 200 years of intellectual history and you bang up against the culture that we indwell that, that continually makes us think we're just talking to the ceiling. So that's hard, hey? Let's not underestimate how challenging that can be. And we've got to be honest with that, that, that therefore the path of spiritual growth in our day and age is very challenging, far more so than it was to, or differently to the way it was two or three hundred years ago. Because now we, the very foundations need to be rethought. Now there are some other benefits that make it easier to be a Christian today, like separation of church and state and you know, hygiene so we don't die and antibiotics and things like that. But fundamentally our experience of God is very different and it's hard. We've got to fight for that. We've got to learn to see that God exists. So once we've said that there is a God, right? So okay, there is a God. The question then comes down to what sort of God is there? And I think there is a view that is quite prominent that says God is completely sovereign and in control of everything. Uh, and so, therefore, he's got the whole, everything in this world is mapped out perfectly and wonderfully and beautifully. And uh, therefore, prayer, we struggle to see why we should pray if God is completely in control, don't we? So that's one extreme. The other extreme is it says God is not in control at all. He, she, or it is, is actually really absent from the world, powerless, uninvolved, and so we're really on a cast off to our own devices. So on one instance, God controls everything, and another place, God controls nothing, and both those stances make it hard to pray. So let me ask you a diagnostic question. And if you saw the little social media stuff we put up, I made a little video that asked this question. Here's the question. Can 
we change God's mind? Do our prayers change God's mind? And by implication, his behavior. Uh, God was going to do X, and you talk to him, and he does Y. How many of you think the answer to that question is no? We can't change God's mind. I see that hand. It's very brave. I see those hands. Okay. How many of you think the answer to that question is yes? Oh, I see that hand. How many of you think the answer to that question is yes and no? (laughs) How many of you are just cowards and don't want to commit one way or the other? Our problems with this question is that our fundamental understanding of God is shaped more by Greek philosophy very often than it is by the Bible. What do I mean by that? Well, in Greek philosophy, ultimate reality is static. So, for example, in uh, Platonic thought, this world is really just the shadows or representations in time of the eternally existing perfect static forms. And so uh, this has massively influenced our culture for for 3,000 years, that ultimate reality is perfection and is static. So once you've reached perfection, it's static, and therefore God as a perfect being is essentially impassable, unmoved, unmoving the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Uh, And that applies then both to the God who is completely in control of everything, so prayer is pointless, and to the God who isn't involved, the God is the the divine watchmaker, perfect, static, and leaving us to our own devices, so prayer is also pointless. What is the Bible's conception of God? How does, so if, if in Greek philosophy and in much of our thought, ultimate reality is static and perfect, in the Bible's conception of God and of ultimate reality, what is, what is ultimate reality really consist of? What is the essence of God's being? Love, yes. Love in relationship. So for there to be love, you have to be in relationship. So the essence of reality is a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in an eternity of self-giving love and relating, right? So then when God creates us, he creates us to participate in this reality that, as, that is at its heart personal, not static, but personal. So we're, we're brought into this world to be drawn into a relationship with this eternal communion of self-giving love. Now, uh, big philosophical idea, now make it more grounded. What's one of, in this relational vision of God, as we read the Bible, and if you haven't read the Bible much, let me encourage you to, to give it a crack. It's full of great stuff. Uh, but when you read the Bible, what's one of the dominant metaphors that God uses to describe his personal relationship with you and I? Father and child, parent and child. Right, So that is, that is a parent-child relationship. So now, this is the dominant, right the way through the Bible, this is the key thing, that, that we're, we're children to God's heavenly fa- parenthood, right? He's our father. And, and as parents, parents, we only want what's good for our kids. We love them, and so it is with God. He loves us. Uh, but think about it for a moment. Um, when you are a parent... 
do, does your child influence you and change your mind? Yep, for sure, absolutely all the time, right? Our kids ask us stuff, our kids cry, our kids present their needs to us, and we respond. Now, in fact, that's the definition. I mean, a parent who, who is unmoved by their child's need or request is, is a really toxic, dysfunctional parent, right? It's actually the same in marriage, by the way. There's a little marriage note that um, uh, the there's a whole bunch of data that says the key to a long-lasting, healthy marriage is the ability, is mutual influence. That both parties, this is the work that John Gottman has done, says when, when you study healthy relationships, there has to be a sense of mutual influence, which is why strongly hierarchical views of marriage actually are quite toxic long-term because the one with the power is less influenced by the one with less power. So actually what you want is equal power and equal mutual influence. That's the essence of relationships, right? And so it is with our parenting. Now. If you're a three-year-old, say, you, say you're a three-year-old, uh, do you think that your father or, and or mother are omnipotent and all-powerful compared to you? Totally. Absolutely. And what do you do with that experience? Do you just go, wow, mum or dad are all-powerful, so I don't need to do anything? Because they have so much power, because they are your parents, and because you know that they love you, little children are completely unrestrained in asking for things from their parents and demanding stuff and yelling and screaming until they get what they want, right? Now, um, does, that, does that ring a bell with how God is presented in Scripture? So Genesis 18, for example, the, the story that was read for us is Abraham and God. And I just think this is one of the most provocative and beautiful and paradigmatic stories outlining how we're to work with God in the world, isn't it? God is a God who loves the world and who wants to bless the world, but is also committed to doing away with evil. And by the way, let me say, I chose this text without any subconscious or alternative reading around the plebiscite uh, results coming out. I just want to put that out there. If this is, I'm, I'm not, we don't want to read from Genesis 18 and Sodom and Gomorrah that God is in the smiting and the smoting business today because of the plebiscite result. Just, just put, I felt like I needed to say that, right? Let's put that to one side. That's not the point. The point here is Abraham working with God for the blessing of the city. And what's it like? There's God, who's the creator. And there's Abraham. And he's just talking to God. He gets into a negotiation with God. God's going to smite Sodom. And Abraham goes, but hang on. Whoa, 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 God. Look, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a little nervous bringing this up right now. But, but what if there are 50 righteous people? Oh, I know, for 50, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll change my mind. Oh, wow, well, what, what if they're 45? Oh, I've got a good point there, Abe. I hadn't thought of that. 45? Mm, 45, I'll do. 45 will be good. Oh, okay, what about 30? Should have been an auctioneer, shouldn't he? Oh, what about 30, Lord? Uh, yeah, 30. That's good. Good 30. I'll... What about 10? Yeah, for 10, I'll spare the city. Now, that's, that's pretty amazing. So, in my many years as a Christian, uh, here's what we often do with that story, though, don't we? We, we kind of think it's different to our experience of God. Don't we? we go, oh, look, 
God, so, and if it's different, there's only two ways it can be different. Either God has changed, or, or either God's fundamental nature and interaction with us is different, or we're fundamentally different to Abraham, right? But actually, biblically, neither of those two things are true. Like, God is the same. He's still a father who wants to engage with us in this work of loving and serving the world. He's still the same. You read the whole Bible. The Bible is just story after story after story of people deeply talking with God about what matters to God and to them. I mean, most clearly of all, you see it in Jesus' life for whom an ongoing deep conversational relationship with his father was vital and central. So then we think, okay, well, God might still be the same, but gosh, Abraham is different to us, right? Abraham is some giant of the faith. Very different. But, but stop. Like the, imagina- the, the, the exercise that we should do is imagine that we're Abraham. Because like, fundamentally, he is no different to you or I. The same, he lives in the same world, with the same cognitive apparatus, the same emotional experience, just like you and I. And he could have a conversation with God like that, that changed God's mind. Now, you might think to yourself, well, of course, Abraham was some great saint, wasn't he? And I'm no great saint. But remember, I think it was last year we did a little series on people's experiencing God in the Old Testament. and Abraham was a profoundly flawed person. Like at every key moment in his life, he doubted God. (laughs) He pimped out his wife twice to save his own skin. He was really flawed. He was no great spiritual guru. He was just a person like us who could have a conversation with God. So what does that all mean? That means that God's plan for us is to work with him in this world to bring about his his loving purposes and will in this world, and he engages us in that work. And, we're to, and, and the, the way we go about it is we're to talk with him about that all the time. That's what prayer is. But So, so we think, okay, God is there, and, he, and, and, and he's listening to us, and we can change his mind. And I think that's massively important. I, one of the things that's true in our tradition of uh, sort of reformed evangelicalism is that we don't pray much. And, uh, and part of the reason we don't pray much is because we, we think God is, you know, we have this high view of the sovereignty of God. We can't change God's mind. So then we tie ourselves in knots. So we say we can't change God's mind. We've got to sort of protect the sovereignty of God. And uh, so therefore, we've got to find a way to say that prayer is really still important. So you go, what's the real important thing? What does prayer do? It doesn't change God's mind, but it changes us. Right, so prayer is, I find that a, I mean, it does change us, but I find that a really profoundly weird, unbiblical view of prayer. Like, imagine if I said to my kids, Oliver and Freya, man, I, you know, keep on asking me for food. It's not going to change whether I give it to you or not, but it's good for you. You've got to become humble. You've got to learn. You've got to ask me all the time, and I may or I may not do it because I'm completely unmoved by your requests. That's weird, isn't it? That would be weird if I parented like that. I don't think God is like that at all when I read the Bible. The Bible says there's this deep, interactive, collaborative partnership with God. Now, Sally pointed this out before. There's a final reason that we find prayer boring and difficult and disengaging. 
We think, yeah, my words can change God's mind. But when I read Genesis 18, and when I read the Bible, what's, what's, the, what's missing in so much of our prayers and our experience of prayer today? It's not really a two-way conversation, is it? So much of our prayers are one way. It's just us talking to God. When I read the Bible, the Bible is full of God talking back to us. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I saw a meme doing the rounds. Someone said, you know, when I talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to me, it's called schizophrenia. Um, we've, you know, I thought, we're really skeptical about claims that God talks to us, right? And yet, when I read the Bible, it's absolutely central to our Christian faith that we, we're in a collaborative relationship with God. In fact, Dallas Willard, who's a bit of a spiritual intellectual hero of mine, Willard says, the most important thing in the church today is to teach people how to hear from God. So uh, we find that really hard. And we're nervous about that and we're worried about it. So we say, well, you know, the only way God speaks today is through the text of Scripture. I mean, in an attempt to be biblical, that's a less than biblical view of how God works in the world, right? He clearly works directly with us and has a conversation with us. And it's massively important. The text of Scripture is foundational. And, and we've got to understand that that is the primary way that God speaks to us. But he's personally involved in our worlds. Now, and he, and he speaks primarily... Um, the, the testimony of God's people in Scripture and over the last 3,000 years is he speaks. He speaks primarily through the still small voice, the, the thoughts that he puts into our minds. There's another whole philosophical discussion around this about how God as a non-physical being can work directly on our minds to, to communicate his mind with our minds, putting thoughts in our minds. I think that, that's perfectly reasonable and logical and biblical. So uh, the way prayer starts to become a collaborative enterprise with God is when we talk to God about our concerns and his concerns, and he talks to us through scripture and through directly speaking to us in our minds and bringing stuff to bear in our minds. And uh, th the image is this, right? That God, God wants us to work with him in this world, and he's, w he's with us. And a lot of stuff we know from him over time, how we should work. Like, so my kids, you know, they're, they're older now. They don't, they don't have to ask me, you know, Dad, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? They just know what I think because I've been shaping them and telling them and instructing them and forming them for 17 and 15 years. And in another 20 years, they'll know even more. But there's a bunch of other stuff when we face new situations or places of complexity. They might say to me, Dad, what do you think about this? I need your help in X, Y, and Z. And so it is with God. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you kind of know mostly what God thinks about a lot of stuff in Scripture, right? You should. That's the plan. Um, but then, actually, there's so much in the world that we don't know, that, are, that is new. And so the Bible says we need to continually ask God as we face new situations, what should I do here? How should I do this? Because the world is a very vast, complicated place, isn't it? And it's confusing. So, I mean, even this week, so I'm, I'll, I'll show you what it, uh, this, is, this is how I try and do this. And again, you know, disclaimer, I'm no great spiritual guru. But this morning, I've been, I found, I think I said this earlier, I found preparing this hard. I, there's so much that I want to say, and it's so complicated, and it's so easy to just lay guilt on people. 
so I'm driving down to St. Mary's and I'm driving back up this morning and in the car, I'm just talking to God and I'm like, Father, um, I just need you to help me. <laughs> I just, because I'm going I'm to find this morning hard. And I, I can feel the pressure. This is because it's a spiritual battle that's going on, Lord. So, so just can you, can you give me the words to say? And, um, and I really sense God saying uh, that what I was doing was right to, to not, not put guilt on people, but to entice you with a vision of his divine fatherhood. He said, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm your father. I'm your dad. And this is what you got to, this is, this is what we want to entice people in. And Mark, I want to entice you in to trust me more and more as a dad, which is really hard for me, right? Uh, God was saying that. So I thought, okay, Lord, that's what it's like. Just this ongoing communication. And, and then God invites us to pray about everything that matters. So you go to work tomorrow before you go into your meeting. You just talk to God. Well, God, tell me what I should do, what I should say. Now, sometimes this will... You know, and, and sometimes God will make, put, put ideas in your mind that, that over time you will realize could only have come from him. You know, you're about to do an operation and you pray. I, I remember, for, we've got a bunch of medicos in the house. I remember I was, we were working with this hospital um, in, in the DRC in Goma called Heal Africa, a wonderful orthopedic training hospital that a local Congolese orthopedic surgeon and his wife have set up. And, uh, and uh, Joe says this, Joe Lucy says, where we, he says, um, until a doctor, the, he says, when, when they get Western doctors come over to operate, he says, the first thing we have to teach these doctors and these specialists is we have to teach them how to pray for their patients. Before they start operating, they have to pray. They have to teach them how to pray. He says, otherwise, they're no better than witch doctors. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. Um, no separation between like his, his clinical skills that he developed as an orthopedic surgeon training in Belgium and in Switzerland, and then God had worked through his hands working with his patients. I thought, isn't that wonderful? So tomorrow when you go to work, you're going to work with God, right? God's going, or another way of putting it, God's going to work with you. And it's right, and he wants to be involved, and you want to learn from him how to, how to involve him in what you're going to do at work. When you go home from church today, and you're going to go and you're going to you know, immerse yourself in your family situation, well, God's with you there, so talk to him about, well, I don't know, maybe, like, maybe you're more organized than us, but maybe you're organizing Christmas with your family. And you know, sometimes that can be an enormous joy. And sometimes that can be a little challenging, Right? So maybe you want to talk to God. Okay, Lord, tell me what I should do about Christmas. And, and if you hear the words Japan skiing, you'll know clearly that's from God, right? <laughs> yes, abandon the family and... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that might not be God speaking right there. I think for us as a church, uh, we, we need to understand this because there's another... There's another quote that is terribly um, uh, convicting from, from Bounds, that this is, uh, again, this book of his that was so challenging. He says, praying is spiritual work, and human nature does not like taxing spiritual work. Human nature wants to sail to heaven under, favor, under a favoring breeze, a full, smooth sea. Prayer is humbling work. It abases intellect and pride, crucifies vainglory, and signs our spiritual bankruptcy. And all these are hard for flesh and blood to bear. 
It is easier not to pray than to bear them. So we come to one of the crying evils of these times, maybe of all times, little or no praying. Of these two evils, perhaps little praying is worse than no praying. Little praying is a kind of make-believe, a salve for the conscience, a farce and a delusion. Huh. Wow. And I, I thought, gosh, that could, really imp- that, could, that could bring a whole lot of guilt to bear right there. But I thought about it. I thought, what sort of relationship would I have with my kids if they only spoke to me like once a month or once every six months and then only when they needed something from me? I mean, I have a brother for that, you know. <laughs> only calls when he wants money. I don't want that for my kids. Like my heart yearns as they grow older to have them just, just involve me in their lives. Talk to me. Nothing honors me as much as when they ask me for something, right? I think it's that with God. How, how can we become a people, and you may already be far down this track, but more and more a people who just involve God in every bit of our lives and delight to talk from God to God and hear from God uh, without it being a weird, wacky thing? doesn't have to take much more time, does it? it just, it's a change in mindset and attitude. Uh, and sometimes it just will feel weird and we won't know how this all works. I, I had this experience some years ago. I'd, I'd read all this stuff in the Bible and in Dallas, and I thought, okay, I've got to learn to pray for people and learn to hear what God is saying in response. So uh, one of my early experiences in this was um, a uh, a, a beautiful family moved in down the street from us in Canada, and they're a Hindu, an Indian-born Canadian, and he was from India. And we had them around for a barbecue and welcome to the neighborhood. We get chatting. They're, they're a lovely, lovely young family, a lovely family, our sort of age. So about a, a few weeks later, I'm at the gym working out. And I'm doing some. I'm on the treadmill. It's the end of the workout, and I'm just sort of working, and I, and I see this friend of ours um, uh, on, on an elliptical a little way down the gym, and as I'm working out, I get this thought in my head. I go, I have this thought that says, uh, God wants to say to this friend of mine, your healing will begin when you know how much God loves you. And I thought, that's a weird thought. But okay, I'll give it a go. So I keep running because I say, well, Lord, I can't say anything until I've finished my allotted time on the treadmill and I need to get, you know, blah, blah, blah. I keep putting it off and hoping she'll leave because then it feels really weird and awkward. And I'm like, is this really God or just me? And I don't know what to do now. So I finish and I get off the treadmill and I'm dripping with sweat and she's still working on the elliptical. And I think, oh, darn, okay, so I should, let me, let me give this a go. And so feeling incredibly awkward, I, I walk around to her and I go, hey, hi, hi, how you doing? Hi. You're not working very hard. You're not sweating. But that's good because, you know, um, you can hear what I'm saying. I didn't really say that. Um, And I said, look, this might sound really weird. And I don't often do it. But sometimes I think God God tells me this, gives me a message for people. So, and I don't know what this means. And if it's totally weird and bizarre, just tell me and, and ignore it. And we'll pretend this never happened. But I think God wants you to know today that your healing will begin when you know how much God loves you. And she said, oh, thank you. And I said, no worries. And I walked off. And that was it. And then we all pretended to, that it never happened. For five years, we pretended it never happened. It was really awkward. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Fast forward four and a half years later, farewell party in our place. 
and these neighbors are there. And in the middle of the party, there's people milling around. She draws me aside and says, Mark, I just want you to know, I just want to thank you for what you said to me at the gym four years ago because that changed my life to know that God loves me. She's still a Hindu, but God just connected with her. Turns out she'd had a near fatal motor vehicle accident. She had all kinds of cognitive impairments, all kinds of pain, all kinds of difficulties, nothing that I'd known at all. And, uh, and God had just used that to tell her that he loved her. Yeah, wow. Just a little thing, right? And I have to keep reminding myself that's what prayer should be like as we work with God in the world. And you get to recognize when it's God leading you and prompting you. And then you step out in faith and, and you trust him, right? Um, I think that's what starts to draw us into a collaborative working relationship with our loving Father. So won't it be cool for us as a church to journey together to become more and more like that and to, to experience God in that way and to involve others in that. I think that's where the power, the spiritual power to change the world comes from, not from us, but from God and us working with him. So let's pray.